tonight, Father, I thank you that you are good and you have not left us to figure out who you are on our own, but you've provided us with your word so we can know you. I praise you that in your word we find the words of life. There's so much trouble in this world that leaves us asking questions, wondering who you are and who we are. So I thank you that in your kindness you have answered these questions in your word. I thank you that even when it does not feel like it, you are good and you are in control and your ways are good. Father, this passage is not one that I would have chosen to teach, but you have asked me to do so. So I pray that you would help me be faithful to your word. So often when I come to a passage that does not seem to apply to me, I confess my eyes might glaze over, but Lord, I know every word in the Bible is breathed out by you with purpose. So I ask you now to help me, Lord. Help me to teach these dear women what you want them to glean from your word. Help us to learn more of who you are in your ways. Amen. Amen. Last week, we took a break from our study of the book of 1 Peter to hear a special Easter message from Debbie Cameron. What a blessing that was. Thank you, Debbie. It is so good to take time to reflect on the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus and the power of his resurrection. This week, we're jumping back into 1 Peter, and we're heading to the end of the book. Let's take a beat to recap what we've learned from Peter so far. Peter has reminded us that we are born again to a living hope and that our salvation is precious. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. He has taught us that because of this great salvation, we are called to be holy and con to conduct ourselves with fear of the Lord throughout our time in exile, our time here in this world. He has encouraged us that we can do this by looking to the example of Christ, the living cornerstone. He has taken time to explain what this type of conduct looks like in this hostile world by giving us guidelines of submission, submission to authority, submission in marriage, and he has encouraged us that we can submit even when it requires suffering because God will give us grace and he will bless our submission and that it is a blessing to suffer for righteousness sake. He reminds us that suffering is not in vain by pointing us to Christ's suffering and his victory over sin, death, and Satan. He affirms that those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What good, good news that our suffering has purpose and is seen by God. Now let's open our Bibles to today's text, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ladies, if you're anything like me, you might think this passage isn't for me. This passage is written for men, but I want to assure you there are no blue verses and pink verses. Every verse in the Bible is for every believer. So let's spend some time looking through this passage and seeing how it applies to all believers. I confess this passage has been a challenge for me. I've been digesting it since it was assigned to me back in December. I keep coming back to it to chew on it some more. 
Each time I have new thoughts, I want to share with you. But I don't want you to hear my thoughts. I want you to hear what God has to say. So I really want to focus on his words, the scriptures. I've been praying for wisdom to honor that. Studying this passage has been good for my heart. Being in this passage has been helpful for my own soul. I've broken the passage into two sections. First, a call to the elders, which would be verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, a call to the congregation of the church, verse 5. We'll end up spending a bit more time on the last word as it is written to us. <clears throat> Starting at verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. This passage begins with the word so, which connects it with the previous verse 419. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In this passage, Peter is speaking to the elders of the church of the exiles in Asia Minor. He affirms his own office as elder to help make his authority on the matter of the requirements of an elder known. In the NLT and NIV, it says, I too am an elder, and I too will share in his glory. Peter is showing the leaders that he is their equal and that they are in fellowship. He is appealing to them from this place of equality in status and relationship. He reminds the leaders that he was present at Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Peter testifies again of his hope in Christ's return, where he will witness Jesus' glory. All of Peter's conduct is out of that hope, that eternal mindset. In verse 2, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter is laying out the task of the elders, which are twofold, to shepherd the flock and to give oversight to the church. Let's think about this for a moment. What is a shepherd? A person who cares for and raises sheep. A shepherd's primary responsibility is the safety and welfare of the flock. A shepherd is committed to a flock and the one responsible for guiding the sheep, protecting them, and attending to their needs. So to serve as a shepherd means to demonstrate commitment to the well-being of other people. It involves watching out for them, helping them, and teaching them. Biblically, the broader functions of the shepherd were to lead the sheep to pastures and water, Psalm 23:1, to protect them from wild animals, 1 Samuel 17:34-35, and to guard them at night, whether in the open, Luke 2:8, or in sheepfolds, Zephaniah 2:6 where they counted them as they entered the fold, Jeremiah 33, 13. Let's look back at what Jesus had to say to Peter after his resurrection. Can someone please read John 21, 15 to 17? Thanks, Maureen. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. We see here Jesus' mandate to Peter to care for his flock, to care for his sheep. 
Peter is teaching the leaders of the early church to take up Jesus' call to care for his flock. What does that look like? Guiding the flock to water, giving them living water, preaching the word, protecting the flock from false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, ensuring that the truth is being taught, guarding the flock, making sure that sheep do not wander away by praying for them, pointing them to Christ, checking in with them on their spiritual growth, and encouraging them in their walk through discipleship. Ladies, I want to encourage you that the elders of MABC pray for their flock by name. That's a beautiful thing, and not necessarily something that happens at every church. It's something I've marveled at as it's beautiful. The second function of an elder is to be an overseer. What is an overseer? Collins Dictionary says an overseer is someone whose job it is to make sure that employees are working properly. The word indicates one who has been given authority or responsibility to govern or oversee a group, a state, or situation. This word is often translated as elder, like in Titus 1.5. How are they to do that? Not under compulsion. I had to look this word up because I didn't know what that means. That's a tip for you in your personal studies. If you don't know a word, mark it down and go look it up. <laughs> the word compulsion means force. Elders are not to be forced into the role. The NIV and NLT translations say, not because you must. To serve as an elder is not an obligation. They are to serve with open hearts, willingly. Their hearts need to be in it. It is a call and an important call, and it requires sacrifice, so they need to have open, willing hearts to serve the church this way. They do so not for shameful gain. They aren't in the office of elder to receive, but to give and to give eagerly. It is not for material gain or gain of status, not to earn respect or position or stature in the community, but to serve the body of Christ. Not to do their will, but the will of the fathers. An elder who is under compulsion might be willing to compromise the gospel to avoid suffering. We need men who serve the church because their hearts are for the gospel, who are willing to lay down their lives to protect the truth of the gospel, even when suffering and persecution come. Verse 3 goes on to say, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The leaders of the church are not to assert their will over another in an arrogant way. I heard one church's motto was, Get on the bus or you'll get hit by the bus. <laughs> This is completely counter to what Peter is saying here. The elders of the church are to be an example to the congregation. This example should be an imitation of Christ. They are to be bearing Christ's image. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul said, Not that we lord it over your faith, but work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. This is how it should look across cooperative, joyful, side-by-side -side work that encourages persevering faith. As we saw earlier, this passage flows from the previous passage that laid out the sufferings of Christ the church would share. The elders will face suffering and are to be examples to the flock of steadfast faith. Paul lays an example that is to be imitated in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13. through I'm going to read that now. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor to be eat anyone's bread without paying for it, 
but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This is the example the elders are set to work hard, not to be a burden to others, work quietly and do good. They're to set an example by their right speech, good conduct, love, faith, and purity. 1 Timothy 4.12 And model of good works, integrity in their teaching, dignity and sound speech. Titus 2.7 Ladies, it is so important that we dig into God's word and trust in his ways. His holy word has given us qualifications for church leaders. It is important that we commend men for eldership who display these qualities and have shepherds' hearts. We need to commend men who meet these qualifications. We need to choose men not because they look a certain way, they've been at the church a long time, they're of a certain age, they've reached a particular economic status, or because they have a leadership role in a secular business or a particular business acumen, but because they have godly character, upright lives, and a servant's heart. This passage is written to the elders of the church, but it has applications to us as women as we seek to commend godly men for this important office. Wives can be encouraging our husbands to grow in the fruits of godliness that qualify men to the office of eldership. One way we do this is by pursuing godliness ourselves and seeking to be good helpmates. Mothers can be discipling their sons to grow into the example of godliness set out in scripture investing in the future leaders of the church. And we can be praying for our elders that they submit to God's will and lead in a way that pleases him. In the First Timothy sermon series, we went through Sunday mornings. We learned how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Paul gave clear directives to Timothy and his church that the elders and overseers were to live upright lives displaying godly conduct and the importance of that for the health of the church. To stand firm in a hostile world, it's crucial to remain connected with a healthy local church. We need brothers and sisters who help us to see Christ, who spur us on to hold fast to the truth, who pray for our persevering faith, and who who encourage us to see through the lens of the gospel rather than that of the culture. I can testify this has been true for me. I was saved by the ministry of the local church, discipled by the members of the local church, and equipped to serve others and share the gospel by the teaching I received through the local church. To stand firm in a hostile world, we need the church, and the church needs godly men in leadership. I want to assure you that the elders do not have free reign of the church. They are to submit to Christ. Let's look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Ultimately, it is he who looks over the flock, and he has called the elders to help him carry out this task. We can trust in the elders' leadership because we trust in Christ. Peter used this shepherding imagery earlier in his letter in chapter 2.25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We who follow Christ belong to him. 
In his kindness, he set up the church in a way that helps protect his sheep. Peter goes on to encourage leaders in their task, which is a good work, one that requires sacrifice, but that they will receive an invading crown of glory for. They will receive an eternal reward. Their treasure is waiting in heaven that will be their gain. James, in his letter, affirmed this reward to all believers. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James 1.12 Ladies, it can be hard to trust in someone else's leadership or to submit. Submission is a good gift from God. Everyone submits to someone, and we see this pattern of submission throughout the book of 1 Peter. In this passage, Peter is continuing his teaching on submission to authority. The elders are to submit to the chief shepherd Christ. The church congregation is to submit to the elders. Now let's look at the call to the congregation in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you with humility, toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When Peter says to be subject, he's referring to submission. We hear this in legal language, to be subject to the law. This means you must obey the rule of the law. Peter is calling the church to obey the authority of the elders. The author of the book of Hebrews affirms this in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Peter tells the church to clothe themselves, clothe yourselves with humility. He is saying, put on humility. To submit will require a humble heart. This imagery of clothing ourselves with humility reminds me of Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. This is how we are to live, lives that display Christ by putting on humility. What is humility? It is a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance. Put more simply, it is thinking less of yourself, being self-forgetful. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from that meeting thinking they were humble. They would not be telling us they are a nobody. The thing we would remember from a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Timothy Keller says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means an ego that is not puffed up, but filled up. Jesus is our example of humility. What did that look like? Paul tells us this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is true humility. Jesus left his position in heaven at the right hand of God to come down as a servant in the form of human flesh, enduring all matters of human suffering, including death on a cross, so that he can make a way for sinners like you and I to be made right with God. That is humility. That is the example we need to follow, laying down our wants, our needs, our will for that of another, of another to do God's will. When we get dressed for the day, we often take something else off, put off something. In this case, we need to put off our pride. What does it mean to be proud? Pride means to deny our sinful nature and stand in self-righteousness. James 4, 6 through 10 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sin puts us at odds with God. When we sit in our sin, he opposes us. But there is hope. The passage in James, similarly to our passage, goes on to say in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Those that are willing to humble themselves before God, to acknowledge our sin and repent, will receive grace. They will receive the forgiveness of their sin, salvation, a crown of glory, and an eternity with our Heavenly Fathers. Our Father, sorry. Ladies, there's nothing too bad. We are never too far gone. We're never too old to come to our Father with our need. It requires humility to acknowledge our brokenness, our sinful nature, our need for our Savior. Ladies, I encourage you to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He will go give grace to the humble. We can submit to those in authority over us, knowing that our submission is ultimately submission to God, our great shepherd. And he is worthy of our trust and our submission, even when it is hard. This is good news. But I don't want us to miss the warning Peter is giving. Those who are puffed up with pride and refuse to submit to the leadership of the church will face opposition from God. God will discipline those who refuse to subject themselves to the authority God has placed over them. The good news is there is grace for the proud. If we turn to Christ in repentance, he will draw near to us and give us grace. I'm just going to close in prayer now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the leaders that you've raised up to do your work. Father, would you place a hedge of protection around them? Help them to serve you regardless of whatever trials and suffering they may endure. Give them an eternal mindset focusing on Christ's victory as they seek to shepherd your flock until Christ's return. Help us, Father, to lay down our pride and to submit to those you placed in authority over us, remembering that submission is ultimately an act of faith and trust in you. Give us grace, Father, to follow you however you are leading us. Help us surrender to your will. Amen.